This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company. For more information and links to all our great podcasts, visit HartmanMedia.com. Welcome to the Solomon Success Show, where we explore the timeless wisdom of King Solomon and the Bible as it relates to business and investing. False prophets and get-rich-quick schemes are everywhere. Let's not be distracted by these. Instead, let's go to the source, the eternal principles that create a life of peace, power, and prosperity. Here's our host, Jason Hartman. It's my pleasure to welcome Chris Stone to the show. He is founder of Faith Driven Consumer and a blogger at Faithnomics. We're going to talk about the economy of faith, really. So let's dive into it. Chris, welcome. How are you? Doing very well, Jason. Thank you for having me on your show today. The pleasure is all mine. This is a very interesting topic, uh, you know, definitely a niche one, but there's a big marketplace out there, I guess, for uh, consumers who buy based on their faith, isn't there? Certainly. We've measured the community at uh, 41 million adults, 17% of the U.S. adult population, spending a very significant $2 trillion a year. So a very meaningful subset of the overall American marketplace. That's in the American marketplace. And of course, around the world, it's even bigger than that. When you say faith, what faith are you measuring and why? Well, the group that we are particularly measuring is a subset of the American Christian marketplace. We shared the size. So it's a significant minority group in the U.S. When we considered it, we were looking at unifying uh, factors. And while there are many, many faiths, in America, when you look at non-Christian faith, as a percentage of the whole, they're meaningful, but they're relatively small. So that was how we identified the group, just as, as simply as that subset of Christians, those whose faith is a large enough part of their life that it has a significant impact on their daily decisions. Give us an example of some of these decisions. I mean, uh, I just can't imagine that this plays that big a role into maybe one's personal spending habits. Give us some examples, if you would. Maybe it's a lot bigger than I think, I guess. Well, actually, uh, we've measured it, and it is a significant factor in where people shop, what they buy, what they watch. Uh, Many people in um, the economy, there is a theory called uh, the triple bottom line. It was really driven from a green or an ecological point of view. Uh, It's people, planet, and profit. So there is a significant basis of people buying for where they have affinity and from brands that culturally align with them or compatible with them. Christians are no different. You know, we look at it as people, our version of planet and that triple bottom line is more of the human ecology or our culture and then profit. Every company that does business does so as a for-profit entity with the intention of making a profit, and it's important what they do. If I'm ecologically minded, I want to see how much post-consumer content recycle materials are doing or how they're impacting the environment. As a Christian, I would look at it very much on the, the profit that you're earning from my business. What are you doing with that? Are you doing things that are compatible with my worldview? So I, I think it's uh, a really significant part. Matter of fact, we find that about 75% of all Americans are driven to do business, at least impacted in some way based upon their worldview or the lens through which they see the world around them. So it's not just in Christian 
issue. It's more of a universal issue, and we're measuring through that lens of a faith-driven consumer and their biblical worldview. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very interesting. So, you know, obviously Chick-fil-A has been in the news a lot, and I think they've been, uh, you know, very unfairly criticized. But I wonder, you know, when you look at it from the brand side, from the, the business's side of the equation, is the, uh, the faith-nomics, if you will, hurting or helping them in the overall scheme of things? Many companies have engaged in significant market segmentation. They have special teams in their marketing department that may reach out to um, Hispanics or the LGBT community or those who are environmentally minded, as an example. We're simply adding it through the, the faithnomics lens, which is the kind of the brand's lens here, how to reach out to this particular community and form a uh, sustainable affinity or relationship, if you will. Uh, the market is responding very well to that. They're expressing a lot of interest in those consumers because everyone is trying to gain market share and they're doing so by creating uh, affinity with certain groups, uh, ours just being one. And we're not asking any of these brands, like let's take a major um, national retailer like Walmart or you mentioned Chick-fil-A, just two uh, diverse brands that represent the entire marketplace. So we're simply saying make us part of America's rainbow of diversity and part of their market mix. And brands are finding that message to be very intriguing because everybody's looking to improve their business. What advice do you have for a brand, a company, who wants to uh, make this part of their brand identity or their marketing mix? Well, we provide a lot of resources uh, to help them build that affinity. So you can come to someone like us and say, uh, show us how to reach this market. But like any market segment, the important aspect is to learn what's important to the group. What does that community value? What are they looking for in a relationship? The majority of faith-driven consumers that we have surveyed, and we've done extensive research on it, indicate that they're actively looking for brands that reach out to them specifically and say, you're welcome here, as they're doing for other groups. The simple secret to that is to learn what people care about and then provide it. A wise man once told me people buy from those they know and those they like. So uh, get to know me, and as a result, I'll grow to like you. Any more additional examples on the consumer side or the brand and company side as to how they're behaving. But I just want to ask you first, you know, what questions do you usually get about this? It's such a niche area. You know, it's really quite interesting. Well, what people asked us originally were, who are these people and do they really exist? And, you know, we have established uh, through considerable uh, primary research, part of our organization is, is a research firm. We have quantified and qualified this group of people. At this point, I, I would say that we're the uh, national expert on Christian consumers. So the existence of the group is fairly well known and accepted, and companies are rapidly understanding the economic power of this. And what they're simply asking is what matters to this community, what matters to those consumers, uh, and we're able to, from that resource, tell them. There are certain activities that faith and consumers uh, find pleasing, and there are certain that cause them pause. 
and our job is to help people define those. We have determined that you can embrace multiple groups by paying special attention in the, in, to each in their own way. So this is something that American brands can embrace without abandoning any other group. There will be areas where those uh, groups have cross purposes. Uh, in those areas, we recommend that the brand just take a, a more neutral position. Uh, on the other hand, a brand might particularly say, well, I'm going to favor one group over the other here in this area. And that's a business decision that they have to make. We're simply saying, are we welcome in your, at your brand? And where there's that claim of distinction, we're looking for proof of performance. So uh, how can they actively engage faith-driven consumers is uh, the activity that we're looking for. Chris, talk to us about the issue of Hollywood and the media in general. Is Hollywood uh, profiting off of Christianity? You know, I tend to think that with its general leftist uh, leaning, that they tend to make Christians look bad in movies and television shows. You know, they're either the dumb redneck or some kind of radical person, uh, you know, different ways they portray this, obviously. What's your take on, on Hollywood? Well, we work fairly extensively in Hollywood. There is significant understanding of the value of the, the Christian marketplace. Variety, the, the Hollywood trade publication, has an annual conference uh, called their Purpose Conference. I spoke at it uh, last June. It is focused on the faith and family market. Uh, I spoke with the uh, president of marketing of, of one of the major film uh, makers slash distributors recently, and his indication was, your market has been important and now it's the market. Why would he say it's the market? That's interesting. He, so, so in other words, he's saying it's increasing in value for them. It's increasing in value. What do you attribute uh, that to? Well, I think they figured it out that there are a lot of people and there's a hunger for movies. What they have not figured out yet, at least at the large studio level of how to make the movie so that it resonates with the faith-driven consumer community. 2014 was dubbed Year of the Bible Movie. It started with Noah as a biblical story, and it concluded with Exodus. Great idea to produce those two movies. The execution, from the standpoint of a faith-driven consumer, was not well received. But there were, on the other side, many smaller films that did very well. Uh, Heaven is for Real is an example. God's Not Dead is an example. Son of God, yet another example. Next year, Ben-Hur will be coming out. Paramount learned from their lesson with Noah and is producing Ben-Hur with a great team. Uh, Mark Burnett and his wife, Roma Downey, are going to be leading that. And we have great expectations for that movie. Uh, Exodus and Noah were driven by their directors in a manner that really didn't resonate with faith-driven consumers. But to give you an idea, we did research specifically on the movie Exodus. And of all Americans, not just Christian Americans, 75% of the American public said, I would like to see the movie Exodus, the portrayal of Moses leading the Jews out of slavery, if it's accurate. The same question, if it differed from the biblical text, would I want to go see that movie? And it was 68% negative. So if you were a Hollywood filmmaker and you found a subject to which 75% of Americans had a positive uh, 
indication and interest in seeing, I think that you would see that to be very profitable. After all, while it is art, it's commercial art, and the purpose of it is to make money. The problem with Fox's um, production of Exodus um, this year with uh, Ridley Scott being the director is that they missed the faith-driven consumer, actually the whole country's uh, criteria there, and, and that movie has done very poorly, and primarily because Ridley Scott rewrote the story to suit his own view, and America did not respond very well. The last numbers that I saw, they had made domestically less than half of what they had spent, and the movie is about run its course in the theater. Yeah. So is the Hollywood group doing this just as profiteers, or uh, is there any real belief behind it? I mean, obviously that's an impossible question to answer, but <laughs> I'll let you take a shot at it if you're willing. <laughs> well, certainly there are many people of faith, Christian people in Hollywood, that work on everyday movies, but they have a strong interest in bringing movies to the Christian community. There is an extremely high level of pent-up demand in the Christian marketplace for entertainment that resonates. So these people are actively producing movies, and they're doing so with good intent. To say that there's a blanket of uh, dark, evil, sinister, or whatever in Hollywood is an overstatement. Uh, Had lunch with a producer recently on the lot at Sony. And, um, you know, we had a, a great time of Christian brotherhood and we prayed before we ate and had um, an open dialogue about Christian faith. And, and we were all comfortable doing that there in the middle of a Hollywood uh, studio. So it is possible. And if, as they're trying to meet the, the needs of, um, African-Americans and Hispanics and the LGBT market, they're going from a strictly mass format producing for the masses to recognizing that they're market segments, and they're trying to reach each of those. And it's a learning curve, and they'll have to master that. And uh, People like ourselves are there to provide counsel. Sometimes they're willing to listen, and sometimes they're not, but that's no different than anybody else. Do you track at all the other markets? I mean, we you alluded to this at the beginning when I asked you about it, but you focus on the Christian market because it's, I guess, more easy to identify where that faith-based spending is and so forth. But take, for example, uh, you know, the Muslim market. Do you look at that at all? I'm sure you've looked at it to some extent, but maybe not studied it in depth. Uh, any, any thoughts or insights? If you look at it numerically, uh, it's very small uh, by comparison. 70% of the U.S. population self-identifies as Christian. Now, when you really get down to, they, do they ever do anything? Do they ever read the Bible, or do they ever pray, or do they ever go to church? It gets down from 70 to 60. Numerically speaking, when you identify the Jewish population or a Muslim population, while it's a very important part of our national heritage, while it's a very important group, Numerically, it's very small. And in our study, we've decided to just focus on a particular group. And at that 17% range, faith-driven consumers are similar in size to the Hispanic market, a little bit bigger than the African-American market. So it's something that marketers can, as we say, it's uh, large enough to matter and small enough to manage. You can form a relationship with the group 
because it's homogeneous enough, it's similar enough to where you can reach out to them with a common message, but it's large enough where it actually makes a big impact in American uh, brands' business. Do you counsel brands and companies on, on how they should do this? I mean, are you saying they can cross that bridge and appeal to both markets? I mean, if they, if they do that, aren't they just watering the whole message down or aren't they just not really trying to appeal to either if they're trying to appeal to both or uh, should they sort of take a firmer position? What's your counsel to them on that kind of thing? That's going to be a business decision. Uh, initially, as a consumer advocate, as a faith-driven consumer personally, my goal is to meet the needs, the wants, and the desires of that market segment. However, when we went about that process, we realized that someone needed to bridge the gap between faith-driven consumers and American brands because faith-driven consumers and Christianity in general had been pushed out of the culture to a significant level. So most brands that we've encountered, while they have a strong interest, did not have a strong internal ability. So by default, we have become consultants to brands and advocates for the consumer, and we've taken the role of that bridge builder. Because we have an, an expertise, this is what a brand strategist is what I am professionally. So it's a natural segue, and as a member of the community, I have native language expertise in that community, so we're able to do that. What we're finding in talking to major American brands is that at a senior level, they're engaging with us and they're listening. And these people obviously have better things to do if this wasn't a value or interest to them. They're taking the time to listen because they see that in a rapidly diversifying marketplace, that it's no longer mass merchandising and mass advertising as it was 20 or 30 years ago. It's a segmented, highly diverse market, and they're having to respond to that. And when they see what is a rapidly mer emerging and economically powerful segment like faith-driven consumers, they uh, choose to take notice. Many of them uh, may, in fact, be faith-driven consumers themselves, although most of them just have a practical business viewpoint of it. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about companies in general profiting off of this? I mean, isn't that uh, something the Bible admonished uh, against? Well, we look at it uh, very simply. There are many unmet needs on both sides of that equation. Faith-driven consumers have differentiated, quantifiable needs in the marketplace. And if we can help them meet those needs, that's great. Let's go back to that from a faith standpoint. Look at that triple bottom line. As a faith-driven consumer, I have needs. I'm a person. I have needs. I need those needs met. The business has a need for profit. If while engaging me, it moves the culture, it improves the culture by injecting those faith-driven values, then I, as a faith-driven consumer, I see that as a win. So let's look at it from a stewardship standpoint. Stewardship is something that anyone who's been to church more than a few times understands the concept of stewardship and the concept of a tithe. The concept that everything that we have was given to us by God. And he asked that we return a portion of that to him. The question is, does God care about the 90% of what he gave us that we keep for ourselves. 
is probably your greatest point of impact. If I'm spending $2 trillion as a market segment, I can have a significant impact. I mean, if you look at it, $2 trillion is in and of itself the eighth largest economy in the world. That's a significant leverage to use. And if you look at other market segments, and I'll give you the classic, probably best example, is the LGBT community. Numerically small at 3% of the population, economically large, and they have leveraged that value to completely change our American culture by engaging American brands and getting them to embrace and welcome them. From an economic standpoint, it's a great case study. As faith-driven consumers, we're a lot slower to the uh, marketplace party, if you would, than the LGBT community, but we're rapidly understanding that to have an impact on the world around us, to have an influence on the American culture, it really starts in the economy, in the marketplace. Hollywood is a big driver. Our friends in Washington think that they drive the economy, but they're the tail of the dog, and and, um, it's a a representation of what's already happened. They're not setting the tone. So if you want to have an impact, you do so through the marketplace and through Hollywood because that's where culture is set. You are absolutely right. You're absolutely right. That's a huge part of it. And that's uh, very scalable and, and brings brands and ideas and philosophies all around the world extremely efficiently. So no question about that. Give out your website if you would, Chris, and tell people where they can find out more about this. Well, you can find us at faithdrivenconsumer.com. That's faithdrivenconsumer.com. If you work for an American brand, if you're a marketer, we have, uh, as you indicated, our blog, and we have uh, a section of that website called Faithnomics. That's written from a brand's perspective of people who want to learn about this community and and how to engage them. If you're a consumer, you can find brand reviews, movie reviews, and other valuable resources at faithdrivenconsumer.com. Chris, do you find that social media or government are inhibiting any activism on this side? It's just amazing how uh, it feels like sometimes you can't say anything anymore in society. I I don't know what happened to free speech, but it's it's definitely been under attack. Uh, You know, are, are there any roadblocks there? We have engaged in some activism primarily when someone who claims to be about equality or who claims to be about tolerance, when their actions really indicate that they are in favor of protecting the rights of a certain group while trampling on the rights and silencing another group. And we have seen people of faith recently lose their job because they expressed their faith. Currently, that's happening in Atlanta. The mayor and the city council just fired their fire chief. They terminated their fire chief because he had expressed a deeply held uh, religious conviction. Phil Robertson experienced that in December of uh, last year when he was put on hiatus from his show. We've taken a position publicly in saying, hey, uh, we're not for discrimination. We're for true tolerance. And true tolerance means that the values and the deeply held beliefs of the faith-driven consumer should be allowed to be expressed. That's part of the American discourse. While we have used social media to promote that, we have found on a couple of occasions that Twitter has blocked our address 
when it comes to light in the public press, they turn it back on. As a matter of fact, one night when they did that during the our I Stand with Phil campaign, every news program that night was talking about it, and very, very quickly Twitter turned it back on. So the I Stand with Phil program is about the Duck Dynasty guy, right? That's correct. Okay. Yes. And so what happened there? Twitter actually blocked your tweets? Is that what you're saying? Yes, exactly. They shut us down. And, and under what pretense? Uh, did they say it was... Uh, homophobic or something? I mean, that's insane. Like, they let all kinds of people say anything. I mean, gangsters and terrorists use Twitter, but the I Stand with Phil campaign is considered more evil than that? <laughs> well, if I um, go to England right now, for that matter, if I go to Canada, and I stand on the street corner, and I read from the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I get down about verse 9, where I start naming off sins that are an abomination to the Lord. And I get to that part that uh, in the string of sins that refers to homosexuality, I have now committed hate speech and I can be arrested and fined. In the United States, that's not the case yet. But if you are the fire chief in Atlanta, you can be fired for doing just that because he wrote a book. 160 pages long for his men's Bible study at his church. About a page and a half of it, according to media accounts, deals with the subject of homosexuality as a sin. And the mayor and the city council said that this is not in alignment with their beliefs. Councilman Juan of the Atlanta City Council said, and I quote pretty uh, much verbatim, if you work for the city and your beliefs do not align with ours, then you must leave those beliefs at the door. And that is purely and simply censorship and control of thought and speech. That's not the America that I believe in. It's not the America that many others do. And it's simply because he expressed his religious beliefs. Now, I may not agree with everything that someone says, but I recognize they have the freedom constitutionally and culturally to say it. And then I can engage them in an open discourse. My position may move, their position may move, but America is about free speech. And when you control speech to the level that the council in Atlanta is trying to do, it's reminiscent of a totalitarian government. And I think people have really lost sight of what America is about. There's yeah. so much political correctness that it's really getting, it's gotten out of hand. Yeah, and I think it was, uh, you know, Voltaire that said something to, along the lines of, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend you to the death for your right to say it. It's just unbelievable, you know, that people who are stoning people to death and cutting their heads off get a pass, but a Christian makes a remark, just says something. They're vilified as if they're the most evil person in the world. They run a private company, never discriminate against anybody, and state their beliefs and their protesters outside of their store. This is insanely imbalanced. It's part of the progressive methodology. You know, I, I actually um, heard Bill Maher on, on his show one night saying, his words paraphrase, we cannot allow anyone to oppose our progressive agenda. You know, cannot allow it. It is a religion to some people, and in pursuit of that, uh, they will do anything, including silencing the opposition. Uh, we, on the other hand, believe that 
while all ideas and all beliefs are not good, and while not all are right, you know, we're open to allowing free discussion and letting the marketplace decide. I'll say what I believe, you say what you believe, and then we'll let the marketplace decide. So we're really about true tolerance and true inclusion, and that's what we're standing up for at Faith Driven Consumer. Well, the interesting thing is, and I'll just ask you for your comment on this. Many years ago, I did an article about um, what I call the monologue media and the dialogue media. With that, the old media being the monologue media, you know, whether it's book publishing, Hollywood movies, television, all of that world, newspapers, of course, they have an op-ed page, but big deal, that's nothing in the scheme of things. You know, it's a monologue. It's a one-way flow. And that media has been controlled by the left, mostly for, you know, decades, of course. And then the dialogue media crops up, you know, just uh, in recent history, and that's the blogosphere, and it's talk radio where people can call in and debate things. And, and you know, it's more deeply debated than a soundbite on television. And that media, oddly, is more libertarian or to the right. It's just interesting that the, the left never seems to make any significant headway in the dialogue media. I wonder why. Well, I don't know particularly, but you are accurate. The dialogue media tends to uh, go right, and the monologue seems to go left. And maybe that's because what we have found is that the left really doesn't care what you have to say. They only want to tell you what they think. As an example, we have had countless people who have signed a recent petition that we've put up to get the chief in Atlanta reinstated, It's a a website called Extinguished Intolerance. And people have tweeted the mayor's office, and they've been repeatedly blocked. The two-way conversation that's afforded to us by social media has been a real significant value. It allows people to get forth their point of view and discuss it openly. Unfortunately, the nature of the monologue media has been very carefully crafted and our point of view is not often given much airtime. So we really enjoy the fact that we can speak and we can communicate ideas and values uncensored. And that has been a real big part of our success. So Chris Stone, thank you for joining us today and uh, telling us about uh, Faithnomics and uh, these very important issues. We appreciate having you on the show. Well, thank you, uh, Jason, for having me. I enjoyed speaking with you and look forward to talking to you as might be appropriate in the future. This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company, all rights reserved. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please visit www.hartmanmedia.com or email media at hartmanmedia.com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own, and the host is acting on behalf of Platinum Properties Investor Network, Inc. exclusively.